Good morning. When I first went outside this morning, it was uh, lovely and beautiful, and then like no time later, and it was blowing snow and cold, and so who knows what's going to be out there when we go outside. (laughs) But uh, it's good to be with you all this morning, and we are going to be in Exodus looking at chapter 6, and uh, we're going to look at all of chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. While you're turning there, I was thinking um, I was thinking about this, my time in grad school when I was working at a coffee shop, and it worked out well for me. They had great insurance, and we were having kids at the time, and, you know, nothing's changed there, so. But it also offered great, you know, hours to work because school was often in the evenings and I could pile my days Tuesday, Thursday and whatnot. And so, you know, I worked at this coffee shop and I really enjoyed it. It was a great job. And uh, it, it was, um, we had a guy who would come in pretty much every morning. His name was Steve and he would, he, he, he styled himself an evangelist. Okay. So he would come in and he would buy his coffee and he would sit right by the door and he loved to talk. I mean, he could really, really talk. And every day he would come in about the same time and he would sit there for about two hours. And he he was retired and he didn't have anything better to do. And this is, you know, what he saw was his calling in life. And, well, that's all fine, except that I got to sit here and listen to him or stand behind the counter working and listen to him and uh, hear what he was saying about God. And the more he talked about God, the less I appreciated him being in our coffee shop because uh, he he misrepresented who God was. And uh, the the more I heard about what he understood uh, God to be like and what his relationship with God was like, the the less I wanted to hear. He had a terrible misunderstanding of who God is. And so um, it, it was frustrating because... Of, of all things that we should know and have an accurate picture of, we should understand who God is. And uh, here was a, a man who claimed to be a Christian, and his understanding of God was warped. And uh, so I, I didn't much enjoy my conversations with him. He, he knew I was in grad school. He knew what I was studying. He knew I was a Christian, and I wanted to be a, you know, a minister for God and, and whatnot. And so he saw us kind of as, you know, as peers and, and whatnot. And, and, and uh, I always wanted to kind of distance myself uh, from him in that his view of God was so warped. And um, having a sufficient view of God, now, of course, we, do, we will never understand everything about God. He's infinite, and we are finite. But he reveals certain things about himself in Scripture, and we need to understand those things that he reveals about himself. And that's kind of what's going on in our chapter today, is that God had revealed himself to a certain extent and in a certain way. And in our chapter today, he wants to give greater revelation about who he is. And so as you're turning to Exodus chapter 6, I'm going to uh, read the entire chapter to us, and then we're going to to focus in on just one little paragraph or maybe a couple of paragraphs kind of in the beginning. But I do want us to get the entire chapter and kind of get the lay of the land of what's going on here in Exodus chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, 
But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the son of, sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites, according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sifri. Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of, an, uh, of Aminadab and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Let's pray. Father, this is your word. You have preserved it for us and you have written it down on purpose. And your word tells us that it is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. And, uh, and so we approach it with that spirit. We ask that you would teach us from your word. We ask that we would uh, be quiet in our spirit and listen to you, that you would instruct us. 
Father, we want to honor you this morning. We want to see you lifted up and see you glorified. And this passage is largely about uh, your name and how you have revealed yourself. And we want to be faithful to that. And so I pray for your blessing and your leading. I pray that you would help each of us to be attentive to, to your word and to be sensitive to your spirit and responsive. I pray that you would speak to us and that you would teach us even from uh, this passage this morning. We submit to you now and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the uh, the passage um, that we're going to zero in today is, is uh, kind of verses uh, 2 and following, but uh, I want to walk through a little bit about um, what's going on in this whole chapter, kind of give it a broad overview, and then zero in on that, okay, so that we can kind of get an ideal. How many of you, or you can raise your hand, it's, don't, don't be ashamed, how many of you skip through the genealogies when you get to the genealogies? All right, one of our elders raised his hand, so... You're, you're in good company. So, <laughs> um, I, I try not to do that, but the reason I try not to do that is probably not a great reason. It's so I can say I don't do that, <laughs> but that's me. <laughs> so what's happening in our passage here is, is, uh, the progress of the story has kind of paused for a second. And there's kind of this dialogue between Moses and God. And, and he's kind of bringing Moses up to speed. He's reaffirming some things that he said before to Moses. And uh, God wants to make sure that Moses understands these certain things so that he can proceed. There's a little bit of encouragement going on there. There's a little bit of correction going on there. There's a little bit of teaching and whatnot that's happening in our passage here. But, um, uh, that conversation about God saying, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do is a big part of the first half or so of, uh, of our passage here. And that's really kind of where we're going to focus. But I, I don't want to skip over the genealogy. All right. Starting in verse 14 and following out. I don't want to skip over that. But um, and then there's a lot of very interesting stuff in there if you spend time digging. OK. And my wife and I were talking about genealogies this week and 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 we were actually we were talking about the book of ezekiel which has a lot of um, difficult terminology and a lot of references which to us seem very obscure because they're to people groups and wars and and other kings that we're not really familiar with but the fact is the more you read your bible the better you understand it the more you get out of even the genealogies and so we're going to take a moment right now, just by way of introduction, and look at this genealogy very briefly, okay? And I'm, I'm not going to walk through it again. I can't pronounce most of those names. I just made them up as I went. And so, um, and so if I said it again, you would know I was pronouncing it differently and didn't know what I was talking about. So, But um, there just a couple things I want to point out regarding this, uh, this genealogy. First of all, it is made necessary because Moses keeps saying, I don't know how to talk well, right? I have uncircumcised lips or I have stuttering lips or I have, it's translated in different ways. But, but the idea is Moses has no confidence in his ability to speak. And so since he keeps saying that to God, remember, uh, eventually Aaron comes into the picture and God says, okay, your brother Aaron can be your, your spokesman. And, and so who is this Aaron? And what do we know about Aaron? And so that's what the genealogy is focused on. It starts off talking about uh, the first three sons of, of Jacob and talks about Reuben and talks about Simeon and then talks about Levi. Okay, and so, uh, but, it, but it stops at Levi and it drills down at, at Levi. And that's because Aaron and Moses are Levites. So where do they come from? What are they like? Well, as you, as you start looking down the family tree, as it gets to uh, Aaron and Moses, you'll see that once it gets to Aaron and Moses, it stops on Moses. Moses had kids and he was married and, and he's not the point. It just stops. 
and focuses in on Aaron instead and talks about Aaron's kids and Aaron's grandson. And so um, it's focusing in on, on Aaron because he, the, the author wants us to know who this Aaron is and he wants us to know what he came from and, and what his offspring will be like. And so um, a couple things about Levi himself. If you remember your, uh, your Old Testament history, your Genesis history, you remember that, that their daughter was, um, uh, or their sister actually was, was mistreated. She was raped. And so Levi and Simeon join forces and they, they end up attacking and killing those people. So they, they, he was given to, I don't know, he was given to violence, but that was his response to his sister being uh, abused as he went and he ended up killing essentially the whole town. And so he was, he was capable of great violence was, was Levi. And so, um, so that, that's interesting. Well, then if you, if you, that's the top of the line. If you go all the way down to the bottom of the line, who is this Phineas guy? There's, uh, Phineas is talked about, uh, towards the end there. He's a, he's a very interesting character. Um, he was also a high priest, just like Aaron is going to be the high priest and Aaron's son is going to be the high priest. And Phineas is, uh, going to be a high priest also. And, uh, he's interesting because of two, um, circumstances that came about. One was he came upon, uh, there was a, 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 a religious, um, I'm not even sure how to call it because we were in a mixed group, but there was a, they were worshiping Baal, which often involved sexual rites and whatnot. And so he actually came into the tabernacle and, and found, uh, found a couple, um, involved in worshiping Baal in the tabernacle of the Lord. And so what did he do? He drew his sword and killed them both. And so he was able to do violence when it came to defending God's name. But he wasn't just a violent man. There was another situation, fast forward in your Old Testament history, to when the people of Israel get into the land of Canaan, right? And they start to settle in different places. And, and some of the tribes settle to the, to the east side of the Jordan River, and everyone else settles to the west side. And the people on the east side end up building this altar that looks just like the altar that, 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 there's, you know, that they're supposed to be worshiping at on the west bank or on the, on the west side of the river in the mainland. And so... Um, the people from the West think, hey, they're, they're setting up idols and they're, they're putting up an alternative place of worship. Let's go kill them. And so they're, they're like, it's going to be a war between them, right? And Phineas is instrumental in closing that down. He's instrumental in stepping in and bringing peace in that situation. And so in, interesting guy. And uh, so that, that, that's of interest. Uh, one other thing is of interest is that um, in the line of Levi, only three women are mentioned. Aaron's Moses and Aaron's mom, who, by the way, was also their aunt. That's a little odd. But Moses and Aaron's mom, Aaron's wife, and Aaron's daughter-in-law. Those are the only three women mentioned. So it's kind of drawing a circle and an underline and highlighting on Levi and, or on, on Aaron and saying this is who this Aaron is. And so that's kind of the point of the genealogy there is to establish what, uh, what Aaron is like, where he comes from, and where he's going to go. And he's, he's going to end up being the, uh, the high priest, and his role is not just as mouthpiece before Pharaoh, but his role is going to really be perpetuated. And so that's the genealogy. Okay? But, uh, so I, I, I don't want to skip over that. I want us to have that in mind. But the main place we're going to focus on uh, really starts earlier on in our passage. And so um, verses 2 through 8 is really where we're going to pay the most attention today. Verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, 
I am the Lord. I'm sure Moses knows when the Lord is speaking to him. And so why did he start by saying, I am the Lord? Well, it's, um, Moses isn't confused and he's, he's not in, he's not questioning who's speaking. When, when the Lord announces, I am the Lord, he's saying, okay, we're going to talk about who I am. We're going to base this conversation upon who I am. It's going to be about who I am. I am the Lord. We're talking about my identity, the Lord is saying. He wants to, uh, to address for Moses and then for all the people what he is really like. And so he's, he speaks to him and says, I am the Lord. In verse 3, he says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Well, if you... Again, remember your Old Testament history and you've read the book of Genesis in recent times. You, you, you'll know that the, the term Lord, the Lord, and it's the same word occurs in the book of Genesis. And even um, Air, or, uh, Abraham himself speaks of the Lord and calls him Lord. In Genesis chapter 14, he refers to, the, to uh, the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And so he's not saying, hey, you've never heard this term before. Let me teach you a new vocab word or a new name for me. It's not that. He's talking about something different. And so what exactly is he talking about is our, is our question. Well, the story about the patriarchs is the history, largely, of God giving them uh, and then restating his covenant with uh, the family of promise, with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So it's about his, his, his covenant promises being made, covenant promises made. And in verse 4, he talks about promises established. He says, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. See, in the, land, in, the, in the days of the patriarchs, they lived often in the land of Canaan, but they were sojourners. They were guests. They were travelers, and they were there temporarily. It wasn't really their home, and they usually lived in tents and were, were kind of moving around. And so... Uh, part of the covenant promise originally given to Abraham and then repeated to others was that this land would be theirs, wouldn't just be a place to camp for a while, or it wouldn't just be something they would travel through, but it would be their land, and that's why it's called the promised land. And so we have promises established. Well, we also have in our passage here promises tested. As we've already seen in Exodus, though, that promise wasn't yet fulfilled by Moses' day. They didn't live in the land. They lived in a different land, and they weren't free, and they weren't the masters of the land. They were slaves, and so they lived in the land of Egypt. So they weren't; those promises had not been fulfilled yet. So instead of being inheritors of the land of Canaan, they were slaves in the land of Egypt. And so you see there in verse 5, Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. After generations in slavery, after after centuries in slavery in the land, God wants him to know that he is fully aware of their plight. He's not ignorant of what's going on. Those promises are being tested as they speak, and from the perspective of Moses and the Israelites, it looks like they just won't be fulfilled. It looks like it's just not going to happen. But God hasn't forgotten. In fact, the promises are remembered. He continues in verse 5. He says, I have heard the groaning of the people, and I have remembered my covenant. We talked a while ago about what it means for God to remember, and that does not mean that God forgot and it came back to him. And, oh, yeah, I totally forgot about that. It's it's the idea of having kind of a stack, like a to-do list, right? And to remember something is the idea of making it the top priority, moving it to the head of the line. I'm going to deal with this now. 
I, I'm, I'm going to remember my covenant, not because I forgot it, but because now is the time to take action on it. And so he calls that out and, and he says the prom, promise, the covenant is going to be remembered. And so to this point, the Lord has been seen mostly as a covenant-making God. He's, he's been revealed, particularly in the book of Genesis, and to this point he's been revealed as the covenant-making God. But he's about to make himself known uh, for his covenant promises that he's going to keep. So those covenant promises will be kept. He will be the covenant-keeping God. And said, verse 6 there, it says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. He says, You used to know me one way. You're about to learn something new about me, or you're about to have a different relationship, or you're about to understand me in new terms. Those promises are going to be kept. More than that, he's talking about promises and rescue. He continues in verse 6. He says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. He's about to rectify their situation. He's about to act. He's saying, you ready? Get ready. Are you ready? Because it's, it's going to be now. I'm going to act. I'm going to uh, jump in and do what I said I would do. I'm going to keep those covenant promises. He's about to rescue them from Pharaoh's clutches. And so he says, he says, you've known me as the one who made promises. You've known me as the one who established covenants with you. You're about to know me as the one who keeps those promises, regardless of the long odds against me regardless of what things look like on the ground. And they will know him hereafter as the rescuing God. He will be the one who, who has taken them out of the land of Egypt. And they'll write psalms and they'll write songs. And, and, it, and you'll see the theme of the rescue from the land of Egypt out of Pharaoh's clutches through the rest of Scripture. That's how they know God. They know him as the one who keeps his promises. He doesn't just say big things. He backs them up by his actions. And so that's how they will know him. It's a new, it's a new way of knowing him, a new relationship. And you see that reflected in the Old Testament. You see that reflected in the New Testament. He's the rescuer, and they are on the verge of being rescued. It's going to happen. So he talks about promises and rescue. He also talks about promises and blessings. He says, I will bring you to the land, verse 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So he's going to take them out of their place of hardship where they're suffering and serving as slaves. And he's going to give them the promised land that will be theirs, that will be their own. And finally, for the first time in the history of all the Hebrew people, they would be in a land that was their own. They can pursue the Lord as they should. They, uh, they're, they're not a rebel minority. They wouldn't be in trouble for proclaiming the name of the Lord and then have armies come against them or, or whatever. Um, they wouldn't be as, as a minority living in the midst of pagans. They would have their own land. And they would be able to worship God as he said they should worship him. So that's what's going to happen. His covenant promises, and they included incredible blessings, the things that he was going to give them, including this whole land that, that to this point was not there, theirs. And that's why it's called the promised land. So he's going to keep his promises of rescue and blessing, but he has an even higher priority. So let's look at his promises and, and priority. In the middle of all of those promises, in the middle of those statements of blessing and, and statements of the fact that God was going to, to deliver the people, we have verse 7. And it says this, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the, of the Egyptians. 
The fact that it's in the center of a long list, it's, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And he says about seven different things in there that he's going to do. The fact that, that this one's in the center kind of, kind of makes him point at this one thing. He talks about what he's going to rescue them from. He talks about the blessings he's going to give them. And then verse 7 is what's in the middle. And he says, I will take you to be my people. You see, of, of greater importance to God than delivering them out of the land, of greater importance than, than removing their hardship and their difficulty, is that he wants to have that kind of intimate relationship with them. He wants, he wants to have them for his own, and he wants them to have him for their own. That's what he wants, even more than he wants to bring them out of the land. This is a higher priority from him. for him. Verse 7, most of our English Bibles read something like, I will take you to be my people. That's what the ESV says. But, but in this one, the King James is, is closer to what the Hebrew says here. The King James says, I will take you to me for a people, or I will take you to me as a people. There's more intimacy there. It's not just you're going to be mine. It's, it's, I'm going to, it's, it's like, it's almost the idea of a, of a wedding. When, when you take your bride, you're going to be for me, my bride. There's a, there's a, there's a special uniqueness that's there. It's not just, you're going to be one of my, you know, such and such, or you're just going to be my possession or something like that. It's, it's, there's something very special and unique in that relationship that God is declaring with, uh, with the people. I will take you to be for me a people. And it's reciprocated. And he says, and I will be your God. The covenant relationship between God and Israel is a, is a beautiful picture of God's saving and redeeming work. It's a prime motivator for what he's about to do in bringing them out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan. And so that's the substance of our passage today. And... Um, it's about learning who God is. It's not about correcting something false that they believed about God before. It's about filling in the picture. God is saying the, the patriarchs knew me as the one who made promises. And they believed me and they trusted me. They had faith. But I'm going to fill in the rest and I'm going to show you that I'm actually not just the, the promise-making God, but I'm the promise-keeping God. And I'll show you because I'm going to take you out of the land and we are just about to go. The time is right now. And so that's what's going on is God is filling in this picture of who he really is. Flashing back to uh, that man, Steve, who used to come into the coffee shop where I worked and, and thinking about, you know, all the stuff that he said. Part of what irked me and part of what tipped me off that there was something askew in his theology was he never got around to talking about Jesus. He'd talk about God all day long. He'd use the word God two or three times in a sentence. All morning, he was like that. And he would never get around to talking about Jesus. And we're going we're gonna to continue on looking at our, at our story here, not the story as you have just in Exodus chapter 6 or, or even just in the Old Testament. We're really going to look to, to the, the New Testament and see how these promises that were made to the patriarchs, and he begins to... F- to fill, fulfill in a certain way in, in the book of Exodus with the people that he's going to take out of the land and take into Canaan, you see that they're actually ultimately going to be summed up in the New Testament. And so that's, that's where we're going to look at now. We're going to look at uh, covenant promises perfected.
those covenant promises perfected. And we're going to see that they are now perfected in Christ. In Christ. One of the major evidence, evidences to me that Steve at the coffee shop had great misunderstandings about God himself is that he never got around to talking about Jesus. And the Bible says that the final perfection of God's promises is to be found in Jesus. And so we, we don't go around Jesus. We don't skip over Jesus. And you've got to get to talking about Jesus. So we're going to talk about promises in Christ. These promises are summed up in Christ. And I quote here from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. All of them. They find their, their sharp point in Christ. And this is what Steve never understood. And this is part of what frustrated me and made me sad about him was that he, he had this understanding of God and he missed Jesus entirely. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so we have to get around to Christ. He is the only one who has the words of eternal life. No one else can lead to God. If anyone comes to the, to the Father, he's got to do so through me. But there's no other way. And so he's the one that we're going to deal with. Jesus himself, the promises are in Christ. And that's why we preach Christ. And that's why reading from Exodus and teaching from Exodus chapter 6, I'm talking about Jesus. Because it points to him. God's promises ultimately are fulfilled in him. And our access to that relationship with God, that special, that special relationship when, when God said, I will take you to be for me a people and I will be your God. Our inclusion into that is through Christ. And so we've got to get to Jesus and we've got to talk about Jesus. And so we have promises that are in Christ. We also have promises of deliverance that are in Christ, right? And uh, as, I, as I think about what's going on in our congregation, I think about the things that, that we've dealt with and things that people are suffering through, there is pain and there is hardship going on right now in people's lives from someone they've just lost, someone they're expecting to lose, hardship, other kinds of hardship going on in their lives. In our church, the word cancer comes up every day. It's real. The pain is real. The suffering is real. So where's the deliverance? You ask yourself that? Where's the deliverance? Well, the truth is that God may not deliver us out of those circumstances. He, he will in heaven. He will af after we die. He will certainly deliver us from those circumstances. But we have no guarantee that God is going to deliver us from the circumstances that hurt so bad right now. We don't have that promise. In, in fact, to the contrary, we've, we've said already from Exodus several times that God actually orchestrates those tough times. They don't just happen. They didn't just come upon you. The wind didn't blow them in. God actually orchestrates those very difficult times, and he did so because he has a purpose for that. He wants to draw us closer to himself. He wants to make us to be for him a people. And he wants to nourish that relationship. But you say the Bible says by his wounds or by his stripes we're healed. What about that? Well, it does. It's exactly what it says. That's uh, Isaiah 53 says that. And when Peter quotes that, that verse from Isaiah 53, and he quotes it in the New Testament, 
Do you know what he says immediately before it? 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. He does end up saying, by his wounds you've been healed. And I've heard that a lot to, to refer to people claiming healing from God because this verse exists because God said in Isaiah 53, by his wounds, we're healed. And so they think that means physical healing of their bodies. God can do that if he wants. And he very often does that. And we give him great praise for that. That is not his top priority. And that wasn't how Peter understood that verse. First Peter two twenty four. he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You've been healed. The real deliverance we need is not from our circumstances. The real deliverance that we need is from sin. We need to be delivered from being our own master, from being our own God. We need to be delivered from calling our own shots. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, which is where he received his stripes. He bore our sins there. He did that for a purpose, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And in that way, by his wounds, we are healed. That's the healing he seeks for us. He very often gives physical healing, and we praise him for that. But that's not the guarantee. The guarantee is that in Christ, you can find healing and deliverance from death and sin. God may or may not deliver you out of suffering, That's not his greatest concern. What he does say is, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He does say that. That's a form of deliverance. Are you trying to do what it takes to to please God so that God can be pleased with you? you? Are you running on the treadmill, keeping everything going, trying to please God, thinking if I do this and I do this, he'll be pleased with me? If, if you're honest with yourself, you'll know actually you're not making headway. If, if you look into the Bible and, and see who God is at all, you know the standard is impossible for you. His standard is actually perfection. So running on that treadmill is, treadmill is getting you nowhere. It's getting you tired. And if you're honest with yourself, you will see it's a losing proposition. And there is no hope in that. And to you, runner, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest from that. I will give you rest. Jesus completed that work. The running that you're doing, the trying to please God, the trying to have everything in order, you you can't do that, but Jesus did that. And he did it completely. And he did it perfectly. And it was acceptable to the Father. We know that because when he died on the cross, God raised him from the dead. God was affirming and confirming that he accepted that offering, that Jesus actually is the Son of God. And he said on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. And he offers you his track record. He offers that to you if you will turn to him, if you will trust in him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's the offer God makes to you. He says, Cease from trying to please God in your own efforts. It will never happen. Instead, here, take, take my track record. I will give you forgiveness in Christ. I will give you my track record in Christ, and you receive rest. And that's why we preach Christ. 
Another way he's promised to deliver us in Christ is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Outside of Christ, we live in a place of death. We actually live dead. We live in oppression to sin. We are oppressed by sin. It's very similar to being in Egypt. And Pharaoh is sin ruling over us. We can't get ourselves out. And we keep getting in despair trying to get ourselves out of that situation, just like the people of Israel were in despair. Can never do it. Can't do it. And Jesus comes, just like the Lord says right here, and says, oh, yeah, you've heard some things about me. I'm giving you the opportunity to experience me as the one who actually delivers, the one who keeps his promises. That brings us to to our next point in our outline, promises and relationship. Promises and relationship. I've already said God's top priority is not necessarily delivering you from your circumstances, not making things easy for you. He may do that. And you can pray and ask him with confidence and boldness. Pray and ask that he will do that. He may not do that because it's not his top priority. His top priority is to glorify himself. His top priority is that all people would be, uh, would understand who he really is and would worship him. And he includes in that top priority relationship with us. How do I know that? John chapter 17 and verse 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is about Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus. Very often as I, as I have traveled around, as I've been in different churches, I've had, as I've had conversations with a lot of people, I get, I get a sense, though they would never say this, I get a sense that, that many people point back to a time in the past when they did a certain thing, like walking the aisle or praying a prayer, and the result is that, yeah, I'm a Christian. I have eternal life because I did that thing. I made that decision. I I walked that aisle or whatever. I did that thing back then sometime in the history of my life. And therefore, I have eternal life. And Jesus says it differently. This, This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So the the nature of eternal life, the, the way we know we have eternal life is in our relationship with Christ. If I'm pointing to an historical event, maybe historical events related to Jesus himself, maybe restore, historical events related to a decision I made, a prayer that I prayed, or something that happened that I was an experience I had, that, that's not relationship. That may be a part of the relationship, but if that's what you're pointing to, and if that's what you're looking at, and if that's the evidence that you have to give me, if I were to ask you, hey, how do I know you're a child of God? And your evidence is, hey, I walked the aisle once. I prayed a prayer once. Here I have my card that that was signed by the pastor. If that's your evidence, I want you to look at the evidence again. Because eternal life is about knowing God himself. Think about, you know, most of us in here are married. Think about when you were engaged. Think about when you just got engaged. You still went to work the next day. You still had bills to pay. You still had responsibilities in your life, right? Those things didn't go away because now you're engaged. But nor did you just add your, your fiancé into your life as one of many parts, right? I, I go to work. I never think about my fiancé. 
I pay my bills and everything about my fiance. I go to church, I do these things. And then when it comes, when it's my fiance's time on Friday evening from 6 p.m. to, you know, to 10 p.m. or whatever, then I think about my fiance. No, none of us does that, right? Think about when you you first got engaged. My, My fiance was involved in everything. I went to work so I could make money so I could travel to Canada to see my fiance, right? Or so that we could arrange and pay for our wedding, so that we would have a place to live afterwards. I, I came to church excited, wondering what God was going to do in my life, because he had already just given me this fiance, and I wonder what he was going to do in her life, and I wonder what he's going to do in our future. She's involved in everything. She's a part of everything I do, everything I think. It, it changes It changes motivations. It changes how you go about your daily tasks. She's not a part of it. She's in all of it. And that's similar. That's similar with our relationship with the Lord. Do you go to work and forget about him? And you, you walk back in and you see the, your Bible, you know, on the nightstand or whatever. Oh, yeah, that's right. Jesus, I forgot about him. No. When you have a relationship with Christ, he's with you through everything. And you're relating everything to him. Why do you go to work? Well, it's got something to do with Jesus. Why do you love your spouse? It's got something to do with Jesus. Why do you go to church? It's got something to do with Jesus. Why do you parent your kids the way you do? It's got something to do with Jesus. He tells me to do it this way. I want to honor him with it. Why did you stop doing that thing? Well, it's got something to do with Jesus. Why did you start doing that new thing? Jesus. That's what it means to have a relationship with Christ. That's not all that it means, but it's going to look like that. Where he, he is everything. He becomes everything in your life. You didn't stop going to work because you became a Christian, but you went to work with a different purpose. You didn't stop loving your spouse because you became a Christian. You love your spouse spouse with a different purpose and a different power. And that's what it means to have a relationship with him. And so that that's my that's my encouragement for us this morning is to think about you know don't, don't be like Steve. I'm sorry if your name's Steve. I'm not, I'm not talking about you. <laughs> Don't, don't be like Steve, who never got around to Jesus. I could tell you some of the crazy things he said about God, but he never got around to Jesus. Get around to Jesus, people. Get around to him. He needs to be in our head, in our lives, when we wake up, when we go about our day, when we go to bed, and when you wake up in the middle of the night. That's what it needs to be. And so I, I want us to have that, that relationship with him. I, I want us to know him in that way. I want, I want us not to uh, want him for the gifts that he gives us. Another thing is powerful about that verse 7 in the middle of that list of I will, I will, I will. I will do these gifts. And then after verse 7, I will do these gifts. And there are a lot of them. And what's the point? I want relationship with you. That's the point. And so if we come to God for what we can get out of him, we got problems. Let's come to God for God. And by the way, he's going to do these things. But the center of it all is that he makes himself our God. And we get to be for him a precious and special people. And so we get to come to the Lord's table now. And we get to celebrate that. And the Lord's table is, is a, a very unique time. It's a unique thing that we do. And it's, uh, first of all, it's for Christians. It's to celebrate what Christ has done for us. Not just what he did in history, but what he did for me. 
And so this is a celebration that Christians should do. If you're, if you're not a Christian or if you're not sure if you're a Christian, come talk to me afterwards. Come talk to, to, to Chris or talk to Woody or, or someone else about that afterwards. But, but just let the elements pass when they come by. And parents, again, this is for Christians. And so you, you know your kids better than we do, and so we, we, uh, we leave that to you. This is a celebration of what Christ has done in our lives. And if, if your child is someone that, uh, for whom um, they, they, they've not experienced that, they don't know that themselves, then uh, just, just let the elements pass. We take this very seriously. And if I could have the men come forward.